Thank you very much for that very warm welcome. Um, it's really good to be here with you and just to be sharing with you in the next couple of hours. Um, Michael's said some of what I was going to say in my introduction in terms of our connection, um, so I'm grateful to you for that, but just to say that um, both through our shared interests in interfaith dialogue and particularly through Bishop Michael's um, interest and commitment to the ongoing life of the church in Iran, uh, Mike, uh, Michael's become a, a good friend to, to me and to the family and to the friends of the Diocese of Iran. Um, and um, I'm hugely grateful for all that you've done over the years, so thank you. Um, I'm, I, I want to be very clear from the start that the reason I think I've been invited um, here uh, this morning is not because I'm an expert on the theological concept of hope, nor because I've done any particular academic research in the field. I'm here simply, as Bishop Michaels alluded, because of the experiences that have shaped me over the years and the insights that they've given me into this very profound and important Christian theme of hope. So what I share with you will be really quite personal, but I hope that at a fundamental level, you'll be able to make connections with your own experience and your own life stories. That's in the end what it's about. So um, because we obviously have quite a long time together this morning with a coffee break in between, you'll be pleased to know, um, I'm proposing to divide our time up into kind of fairly um, clear framework, as it were, um, so that you have a sense of where we are in the session at any given point. Um, the, the different sections that are up there now, they're not divided out equally in terms of time. Some will take longer than others, um, but hopefully you'll at least have a sense that we're moving through. Um, my, my hope was to get right to the end of the third one, Lament, before coffee, but I don't think that's going to happen now. So we'll either stop partway through that or, if necessary, at the beginning and then pick up again after coffee. So I'm going to start just with some um, a very brief autobiography, as it were, something about my own personal story, out of which I then want to draw out these two themes very briefly about identity and forgiveness and how they tie in for me with the whole idea of hope. So I started life in Iran, where I was born and grew up in the city of Esfahan, I'm not sure whether you can see Esfahan, is it's working yet? There, somewhere in the middle there. Um, and I'm a second generation Christian. My father was a Muslim convert from a small village right in the centre of the country. The village actually isn't marked. Yazd was the nearest town and there was a little village um, near Yazd called Taft. Um, my mother was the daughter and granddaughter of CMS missionaries. Herself, she was born in Iran, raised there, and adopted the country, and became in some ways more Persian than my dad ever was. <laughs> I lived, um, as uh, Michael's already indicated, this kind of unusual life between and betwixt these two worlds of Islam and Christianity, um, English and Persian, East and West. At home, life was overwhelmingly linked in with the church, which was made up of a mixture of missionaries and other foreigners working in the country, as well as converts and second-generation Persian Christians. The famous missionary Henry Martin had first translated the Bible into Persian back in 1812, 
And as I grew up, our, our worship was entirely in Persian. I went to a regular state school where I was the only Christian in an otherwise entirely Muslim environment. But this somewhat unusual childhood was what I considered normal. It was all that I knew. And for the most part, my two worlds of school and wider society on one hand and home and church life on the other coexisted reasonably peaceably with some occasional overlap. But all that changed as the events which led eventually to the Islamic Revolution of 1979 began to unfold in the country. At school, I began to be ostracized both by friends and by teachers, and I recall well the growing sense of injustice burning within me at this what felt like unfair treatment, and also the sense of powerlessness in the face of it. At the same time, the church was coming under increasing pressure itself. And to cut a very long story, this is just a few, a few of a, things on a list of events that took place over the course of the first two years, I guess, of the revolution. So various institutions, including hospitals and um, various schools that were run by the church, were forcibly taken over or closed. Church offices and the bishop's house where we lived were ransacked and raided and looted. The church's financial assets were frozen, effectively stripping it of any kind of identity. One of the clergy in the early weeks of the revolution in the city of Shiraz, further south again, um, was found murdered in his study by revolutionaries. My father was briefly imprisoned, um, but released within about a week, um, shortly before an attack on his life in which he survived, but my mother was injured. Um, I've brought, I, I don't know how visible this is. This is um, a photograph of the pillowcase, which I still have. Um, two gunmen broke into their bedroom in the early hours of the morning and fired five bullets. Um, you might just be able to see where the bullet holes are. My father's head was somewhere here, so it was a bit like a halo, actually, a halo of bullets. Um, the fifth bullet went into my mother's hand. My mother threw herself over him um, to protect him and um, was shot in the hand. But for us as a family, events culminated in the murder of my brother, who was 24 at the time. He was teaching at the university in Tehran. His car was ambushed on his way back from work and he was shot in the head and died instantly. My father was out of the country at the time for meetings in the wider province. Iran was part of Jerusalem in the Middle East where he was um, presiding bishop. So he was out of the country um, when this happened and no one was ever brought to justice but we've always, it's always been made, made very clear to us that my brother was targeted because of his association with the church and simply because he was his father's son. After his funeral, um, knowing that it wasn't safe for my father to return at that stage, my mother and elder sister and I joined him in England, assuming that we'd be back home within a few weeks or months. But obviously that was not to be. So having arrived in this country as a refugee aged 14, here I am now, nearly 40 years later, a fully fledged British citizen. 
My father continued working as bishop in Iran in exile until his retirement, and he dedicated the remainder of his life to supporting and encouraging Christians still in Iran, working with Persians in this country, and particularly to translating and writing Christian literature in Persian. Both my parents have now died. So from this potted autobiography, as I said, I want to draw out two themes, if I may, both of which, for me, have something to do both with the grip of fear, but also with the concept of hope. The first is identity, and the second is forgiveness. For Anglicans in Iran, our context was a missionary church seeking to develop its own identity to become an authentically Persian community within an environment where national identity was overwhelmingly regarded as coterminous with religious identity, which was Muslim. In the West, faith is generally regarded as a personal matter, but in the East, it's deeply rooted in the perception of one's culture, one's racial ties and heritage. And so faith strikes at the very core of one's social identity. In Iran, to be Persian was to be Muslim, and specifically Shia Muslim. To not be Muslim was regarded as a kind of betrayal of your nationality, raising all kinds of questions about your identity, who you were, and how you fitted in. So, you can imagine that questions about identity and belonging have been significant for me throughout my life. For the church in Iran, it was about how we could be both authentically Christian and fully Persian. And for me, especially in my adult life, as I've delved deeper into my own past and how it's shaped me, there's been a quest to discover who I am and how I fit in. In her recent book called Unexpected Grace, Farifte Rob, a Persian Christian immigrant to Britain like me, expresses accurately a feeling that I remember well. I've adapted her words a little, but she writes, I longed to slot neatly and inconspicuously into a single culture. But instead, I felt like an apologetic European when in Iran or with Persians, and an apologetic foreigner when in England or mixing with Westerners. In other words, always a stranger and an interloper, living with an ever-present anxiety of just not quite fitting in. The challenge for me has been to not get stuck in that place which is neither one thing nor the other. Not to sit permanently on the boundaries wallowing in a kind of self-pity as an outsider. What I've tried to do is to be more creative and to transform my experience of being on the margins from something that defines me negatively into a much more positive place, which I've discovered is full of richness and meaning and hope. 
I've tried to explore how to find a sense of belonging and rootedness, an authentic voice of my own, which both encompasses the full extent of my particular life experience, but also is expansive enough to be inclusive, allow me to connect well with others, many of whom I discover also feel on the margins for all kinds of reasons. That's been really important for me. For me, this journey into a fuller self-discovery is intrinsically bound up with the idea of hope. Moving away from anxiety and self-doubt towards self-acceptance and hope. So the journey for me has been not about discovering who I am so I can locate myself in a position that is in opposition to others, but to discover who I am so that I can rejoice in that uniqueness and then find a way of joining in fully, of participating and contributing to the diversity. Being part of a Christian community in this country where our shared diversity is a symbol of hope and inclusivity. In the words of Farif de Rob again, the reconciliation that I found in inhabiting the two worlds has bestowed on me the unexpected gift of abundant grace. As the revolution was taking hold, and in the months and years after we left Iran, I witnessed my parents struggle not only with questions around identity and the loss of their only son and the reality of exile, but with some central Christian themes and how to find meaning in them. And in particular, I'm thinking about the idea of forgiveness and how that links in with hope. Even as I, even as I was grieving myself, I saw my parents travel the painful path towards forgiving those who had murdered their son. And through my teens, I watched them adjust with graciousness and acceptance to life in exile and the apparent disintegration of all that they had worked for in Iran. And as I watched them, I began to realize that what they were doing was continuing to hope when everything seemed hopeless. I have a vivid recollection of hearing my father preach during a service whilst we were still in Iran, but after the troubles had started. I must have been 12 or 13. He spoke of having preached the Christian concept of forgiveness for years, but that now he was realizing that his words had been largely theoretical. Now he was feeling the full burden of those words, the weight of actually having to live the reality of what he'd been professing. It was fairly easy to talk about forgiveness when it didn't cost very much. But now it was time for the church as a community and for him as an individual to start practicing what they had been preaching. Forgiveness is painful, it's costly, and it's messy. The desire to embrace it, the commitment to try and practice it, 
These things may be instantaneous, but the journey through it, the journey towards it, is slow. It's full of ups and downs and twists and turns. Forgiveness is a complex theme, and this isn't the time to explore it more fully. In my mind, there's no doubt that it's been misused and perhaps even cheapened and abused by the church over the years. We must, I believe, be extremely caution, cautious in the language that we use about forgiveness, and we should never impose the idea on those who are suffering. But that said, it remains a central Christian theme, and one which we can't avoid or ignore, but one we must grapple with, and one which ties in for me with themes of fear and hope. To end this section, I wanted to share with you the prayer that my father wrote after my brother Bahram was killed. I've never used this prayer in this way before. Um, it's widely available, both in print and online. Um, but he, in any rate, he dedicated the words to my mother over the telephone, and the prayer was read in its original Persian at Bahram's funeral in Esfahan. See, my father wasn't there. This is the English translation, which has become known as the forgiveness prayer. Oh God, we remember not only Bahram, but his murderers, not because they killed him in the prime of his youth and made our hearts bleed and our tears flow, not because with this savage act they have brought further disgrace on the name of our country among the civilized nations of the world, but because through their crime we now follow more closely thy footsteps in the way of sacrifice. The terrible fire of this calamity burns up all selfishness and possessiveness in us. Its flame reveals the depth of depravity, meanness, and suspicion, the dimension of hatred, and the measure of sinfulness in human nature. It makes obvious as never before our need to trust in thy love as shown in the cross of Jesus and his resurrection. Love that makes us free from all hatred towards our persecutors. Love which brings patience, forbearance, courage, loyalty, humility, generosity, and greatness of heart. Love which more than ever deepens our trust in God's final victory and his eternal designs for the church and for the world. Love which teaches us how to prepare ourselves to face our own day of death. O oh God, Bahram's blood has multiplied the fruit of the Spirit in the soil of our souls. So when his murderers stand before thee on the day of judgment, remember the fruit of the Spirit by which they have enriched our lives and forgive. As I prepared for today, I read through this prayer and it struck me very forcibly that the word hope is never used. And yet the prayer is infused with the idea of hope. The prayer defines forgiveness as the thing which allows us to trust more completely. Forgiveness is the thing that frees us from hatred. 
allows us to love and releases us from the anxiety of our own death. I wish now that I'd quizzed my father more about this prayer. But for me, it is brimming with these hope-filled sentiments, as I've already said. What he seemed to be saying was that you need pain and suffering to fully comprehend the meaning of hope. And the gateway between the two is forgiveness. That through pain, we understand more fully how to trust, thus making the concept of hope more vivid and real. Hope is nothing if it doesn't exist when all seems hopeless. You have to experience fear and anxiety and pain and hopelessness to truly know what hope is. In the words of Václav Havel, perhaps hopelessness is the very soil that nourishes human hope. We have to inhabit the fear and suffering of Good Friday and dwell with it to fully experience the hope and joy of the Easter resurrection. I know that continuing to explore the concept of hope remained a lifelong interest for my father. Again, preparing for today, I picked off my bookshelves his old copy of Tom Wright's book, Surprised by Hope. It's still covered with all his characteristic underlinings and comments in the margins and so on. And on the last page, he'd noted the date on which he finished reading the book, which turned out to be just 10 days before he died. Fittingly, it seems to me, it was the last book he ever read. So with all I've said so far, as a kind of backdrop, I hope, and as a means of your understanding better where I'm coming from, as it were, I'd like to change the focus now to our context here in the Church of England, which, of course, I also share with you. And I want us to think about what hope means in our setting and how we might explore it as individuals and as clergy, but also within our parishes and the wider Church of England as a whole. But first, just a video, hopefully, if it operates, I know there was some complexity over it, just to get you thinking more widely about the whole idea of hope. What do you want it to be? Is hope just a guess? A stab in the dark which says that tomorrow must be better than shoddy old today? Ripped trousers, coffee on shirt, pooped on by a bird, late for work, locked in the toilet, packed lunch left in the kitchen at home, P45 on your desk, angry email sent to your whole company by mistake, and it's Valentine's Day. You forgot to buy roses, you forgot to put the bins out, and the cat's been sick in the laundry basket. Twice, after eating fish and eggs, surely tomorrow has to be better. 
Even though the curtains are drawn, I know it is light outside. To most of us, the universe seems stable. We trust that the observable world will keep behaving with useful probability, and that this blue and green earth will keep spinning amongst the stars till death do us part. That is at least what we want to happen, what we hope will happen. Yet if only death and taxes are inevitable, and we have limited control over the future, might the thing we don't want to happen be the very thing which does? And if this is the case, then isn't hope the cruel twin of despair? So hope might not be totally friendly or innocent after all. But perhaps hope could start smaller than all of this, closer than this. Perhaps we hope to be shown a gesture of kindness from another human, just once in a while. To meet someone who will get us, really get us, know us inside out and yet still love us. Or perhaps we hope for experience, for adventure, for mountains, for lagoon swims, for the new, the fresh, a view of the gorgeous rest. Or maybe it is just stability that we crave, solid bricks and mortar. Regular friendship, flat whites and the weekend papers will do just fine. Perhaps we hope for what we haven't got until we've got it, and then we hope to keep it. So is hope ever satisfied, or does it just change and grow? Does hope define us? Can you tell who I am by what I hope for? Maybe we hope in things that make life better, faster, sexier, more colourfuler. It seems we all hope for something different. But perhaps we actually hope for the same basic things. To love and be loved. To notice and be noticed. To learn, to grow and to laugh. To be some kind of authentic, free version of ourselves. As predictable as animals, but dreaming like gods. Is hope then about desire, about a desire to control and rearrange, to shape our future? Do we really have control anyway? Do we drive hope or does hope drive us? What about the man, they, the people who run things, them? What do they say about hope? What do the lawmakers, policy shapers, advertising directors, marketing gurus, lifestyle coaches, inspiring professors, silver screen projectors and think tanks want us to think? Don't they just sell hope of something yet to come, achievement and social success, assuming we politely comply with suggestion? Are we taught to impress with that dress, that chest, those shoes, or that vest? Is a man bun or a top knot or a top man style new hat going to bring a lifestyle to be admired? Is a car which smells like new shoes or fame on Channel 5 News going to do the happiness trick? Is greater equality or the latest gadget or a new health plan your thing, your direction? Or maybe you ignore the politician's argument for urbanisation and long for a small bit of country land, some seed and a mower, cider from your own orchard and lazy autumn evenings with the children and Scruffy the dog. Maybe when all the trying is done, we're just dying to be alone with the ones we trust. The hope of good company is more than enough. But when we thought about politicians and think tanks, do we think of iron tanks? Do we think about the massed ranks of North Korean infantry with their seven permitted haircuts and unpermitted test sites? Do we think of Brad and Bruce looping through time, trying to prevent bioterrorist threat? Do we think of the angry blonde guy with the little mouth and hands and the really long tie? Is it naive to hope that fascists and commies, liberals and mental fundamentalists will one day shake hands and hug and have babies? 
Maybe hope is relative, comparative. Maybe we hope to be like her, but not him. I hope to be able to retire early, or even today. You hope that the money you paid for your sea crossing will get you to land alive. I hope to be cherished by my friends. You hope that when night slides back into the Mediterranean, you will see the sliver of land beneath the pink dawn. So, hope, what is it? Friend or foe or something else altogether? Do we make hope? Does hope make us? What do you expect? What do you want it to be? What is hope? I thought now that we might spend just around about five minutes or so um, talking in twos, threes, fours, whatever works in your um, seating arrangement about what hope means to you. Now, it'll be very easy to get um, kind of carried away in the vagaries here, so do try and stay focused. You should each have um, a sticky note. Um, if you can come up by the end of the five or six minutes, either as a small group or as individuals, either with a definition um, or a sentence about what it hope means to you, or with at least maybe three, I don't know, characteristics of hope. Something kind of that fits on one side of a sticky. And then um, perhaps during coffee, I think there'll be boards up, both in the coffee area here and in the main building. Just stick them up on the board and people can browse and look at them and um, share ideas in that respect. Um, and while you're doing that, there'll just be a few um, definitions of hope up on the projector screens as well. Okay, so just as I've said, five or six minutes. Do continue those conversations through coffee, and I hope that you will feel able to, as I say, to stick up the, the post-it notes so that we can all um, share one another's ideas and thoughts. Um, I would highly suspect that we would never all agree on one definition of hope. But I trust that at the very least we can establish that hope isn't some sentimental feeling of happiness. It isn't a mood. It is rather a virtue or a strength of character. And Justin Welby in his latest book, Reimagining Britain, reminds us that virtues must be practiced in order to be lived. It's not enough simply to state them. We read in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 3, meanwhile, these three remain, faith, hope, and love. These are the three Christian virtues which we must practice in order to live. And hope, I would suggest, is possibly the most forgotten, or at the very least, it is the one that is practiced least of all. We seem instinctively to understand that love and faith have to be practiced daily, even though we may not feel like it. We can't only love when the mood takes us and we strive to stay strong in faith, even when we're most tested. But that is surely true of hope also, and yet we don't always recognize it. And here's an illustration of what I mean. Recently, I've had two different conversations with two priests who've just returned from a working trip to Northern Ireland, where they'd met with people 
quite extreme people, I have to say, from both sides of the Republican and Unionist divide. Both these priests independently expressed to me how hopeless they felt about the situation, that they'd come away from their trip with a real lack of hope for the future of Northern Ireland. They didn't say anything about how they'd struggled to love the people who held such extreme views or how it had shaken their faith to see Christianity employed so inappropriately by both sides. I don't think these sentiments would have even occurred to them. But quite easily they were able to express their lack of hope as if it was quite normal. And yet, we are called to be hopeful every day, just as we are called to love every day and believe every day. So hope must be practiced, and it can start very, very small. But if it's practiced, it'll persist, just like that mustard seed in Jesus' parable. And it can be cultivated, and it can grow. Some of you may well have seen this next video. Um, it always makes me smile, and so just for the fun of it, um, I thought we'd watch it, um, because I think it does um, have something to say metaphorically about uh, the subject that we're thinking about. The video reminds me of one of the visions in the book of Ezekiel. The prophet Ezekiel was part of the first generation of exiles in Babylon around 600 years before the birth of Jesus. In his 25 years of exile, he had stared desolation in the face and experienced every kind of loss. But as he contemplates his fate and the fate of Israel, what is it that Ezekiel sees? In chapter 47, verse 1, at the entrance to the temple, Ezekiel sees a trickle of water flowing out from below the place of worship. He sees a tiny sign of life, which would have been so easy to miss. But Ezekiel, practiced in the art of hope, does notice it. And as he follows it, he sees that this insignificant trickle gradually grows to become a small stream and then a deep river, affecting change as it flows, producing life in abundance on every side. Fertile soil where seeds grow freely. His hope-filled eyes notice how where this river flows, everything has life. Like Ezekiel, we are called to be men and women of hope. Christian leaders who spot the tiny signs of hope in our world, in our communities, in our churches, and then become agents who cherish and grow this hope, who foster it and practice it even against the odds. Signs of God's presence all around. We must only look and take notice. People love lighting candles, and there's a reason for this. When mere words no longer suffice, a single candle flame can be a powerful and universal symbol of hope, 
of the dogged determination to not allow darkness the final word, to continue hoping against hope. A candle flame is a tiny and fragile, some may say insignificant thing. And yet it's in its determination to shine, it extinguishes the darkness and becomes a source of light and hope. I think that might be a good place to stop and to go for coffee. And when we come back, I want us to think a little bit about what the signs of hope might be in your context. So we'll come back to that. Thank you. Thank you.